we want to state again this morning that we love you as Janita sang today we love you for everything that you've done in our lives all that you're going to do but right here right now God we proclaim that we love you that we exalt you that you are worthy that you are the name above all names that you're the name above all of our circumstances and situations that you are exalted and living and almighty God. God, we pray today that the sweet song would be our lives lived for you. The sweet song that you hear in your ear would be lives surrendered to you, lives that love you, lives that say you're worthy, lives that say we exalt you. God, your presence is tangible in this place. We don't take that for granted, Lord, this morning. Thank you that you visit us. You presence yourself here with us, with your spirit this morning, God. And God, I pray as we open your word together, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move as powerfully as you have through the worship, through the word, Lord God, that our lives would be open books before you for you to scribe on, for you to delete from to write new things in God. We want to be open to you this morning to hear whatever it is that you want to say. God, by your spirit, open our hearts this morning to you. Help us to be open and willing and obedient and receptive, God, to all that you want to say and do in us right here, right now, by your spirit, in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please do take your seats. Very good morning to you all. You're in fine voice this morning. And it is, uh, as Dan said, great to see my friend Michaela uh, and her daughter Livia here from Australia. They used to be, uh, as Dan said, part of this church around nine years ago. They were in my life group. And uh, some of you may remember them. And she followed the Lord's calling to the sunny side of the world. And uh, she's back, I think, for only the first or second time in all that time. So it's great that she's able to be with us this morning. She's staying for both services. How keen is that? But I guess when you've come all that way, you've got to make the most of it, haven't you? Um, I want to talk to you this morning about deal or no deal. And I've got some deals or no deals that I want to kind of challenge you with or ask you this morning. And I want you to participate, okay? Otherwise, it's going to be a bit dull. Um, and... Uh, I'm going to say, is this a deal or is this a no deal? So, um, you're on a diet, okay? I'm not going to ask who is or who should be, no. Um, you're on a diet and you're doing really well and somebody comes to you with a gorgeous, just yummy piece of chocolate cake. Do you say deal or no deal? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, something a little bit, little bit more serious. You're short on cash, okay? Budget's a bit restricted. You're a bit, you know, things are a bit tight. And there's a film that you really want to see, you've really wanted, and uh, you just know it's brilliant, and it's your kind of film. And somebody offers you a pirate copy of the DVD for a pound rather than 12.99. Deal or no deal? <laughs> Who said deal? Mark Oakes. Head of C fan, UK director. <laughs> that which basically means if you want a Rhino Bonkey DVD as pirate, it's okay. 
you've heard it from the main man. So, and number three, you notice someone on their own in church and you feel prompted by God to walk across the room and speak to them. Do you say deal or no deal? I'd like to think so. Uh, Okay, this was something that was actually offered to me uh, recently and uh, I might tell you what I said. Uh, You're in great need of exercise and somebody says, why don't you join us for a 6.30 run in the morning? Deal or no deal? Guess what I said? No deal. You can tell. Okay. um, A neighbour is in need and you feel convicted to offer help. To that inner voice, do you say deal and you go next door or do you say no deal? Oh, you're so good, aren't you? Okay, last couple. You notice you've been charged, uh, you've not been charged for something in uh, a restaurant. You've had a lovely meal out with friends and you notice perhaps they haven't charged you for all the desserts. And the waitress comes over and says, is your bill okay? Everything all right? Do you say deal or no deal? Oh, you have to think about that one. All those free desserts. And lastly, it's nine o'clock on a Sunday morning around the 25th of July. You've had a busy hard week. You're feeling a bit sleepy. The lady gets up to speak and you're tempted to sleep. Do you say deal or or (laughs) no deal? Okay. We're kind of faced, aren't we, with uh, deal or no deal kind of things all through our lives. Some of those are a bit more serious. Some of those are a little bit funny. Um, But in America, they did a survey over some things that were a little bit more serious And uh, Noel Edmonds is going to come up now with some cash, just to kind of imagine, you know, set the scene a little. But this isn't American. I know Noel's not American, nor is there $10 million in that case. But uh, a survey was done where they stopped a load of people on the street and they said, if we offered you $10 million and you've got five minutes to come up with an answer, which of these uh, would you you accept the money for? And there were things like, uh, would you kill a stranger? Would you leave your spouse? Would you give up your American citizenship? Would you put your children up for adoption? Would you abandon your faith? You know, some fairly major um, decisions. Well, this is what the survey showed. For $10 million, these were the results. That 2% would put their children up for adoption. 3% would have a sex change operation. 5% would change their race. 6% would kill a stranger, 14% would leave their spouse, 14%, same, would give up their American citizenship, 17% would become a prostitute for a week, 19% would abandon their faith, and 20% would abandon their family. So, I have loads of questions about that survey which would probably give it some context. I don't know who they asked and kind of what sector of society to come up with those fairly harrowing statistics. But for £10 million, some people would accept some extreme kind of uh, payoffs, if you like. Uh, I'm not suggesting that any of us would do anything remotely like that. But I think it suggests that, that there is an, you know, an aspect that we will deal on certain things if the price is high enough or we value something less enough. And I want to just quickly buzz through some people, I think, in the Bible who said deal or no deal to some kind of offers. Um, You see, I think we're faced with deal or no deal type of questions every day of life. Sometimes they're really small, like will we 
well, not so much small, actually, when you walk across a room to, to befriend somebody, to the, you know, choosing to not befriend somebody at work who's being flirty to you, and you're married, you know, and or you're thinking about, you're short on cash, and you've got a great way around the organization's accounts. You know, it kind of goes from the tiny to you get 2p extra change in the supermarket, and do you give it back to, obviously, the extreme things, and those have different kind of impacts on our lives. Some of those are an inner conviction that we know we shouldn't do something, and some of those are inner promptings that we should, and we kind of do deal or no deal to both of those. So through the Bible, just some people, obviously there's loads. Judas said deal for 30 pieces of silver. Jonah said no deal to God's request to warn the Ninevites. Pharaoh said no deal to Moses' please. I've put please there as in P-L-E-A-S-E. That's not right, is it? Should be please to free the Israelites. Mary said deal to the angel Gabriel to give birth to the Messiah. Esther said deal to risking her life to save a nation. As we've learned recently, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego said no deal to worship in Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. Daniel said no deal to defiling himself by eating the king's food. Jesus in the wilderness said no deal to Satan's offers. Jesus said no deal. Sorry, Jesus said deal to go into the cross when he said not my will but yours. So throughout scripture, you can see the people of God saying deal or no deal to uh, things that have come their way. But we're going to turn and we're going to read uh, one such kind of example from Genesis 25. So I know you've all got your Bibles with you. So I'll just give you a couple of seconds to find uh, Genesis 25. It's nice and easy. First book in the Bible and uh, 25 chapters in. And we're going to start at verse 29. No, 27. Can't read the small print. Okay, Genesis, Genesis 25, starting at verse 27. And it may be entitled in your Bible like mine, Esau sells his birthright. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau. Isaac is his father. Loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebecca, the mother, loved Jacob. One day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that lentil stew. All right, Jacob said, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me right now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother, Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. In doing so, he showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Now, we read that and we think, well, that seems like a bit of a dumb deal to do. But I want to just illustrate that for you. So there's going to be a little bit of activity on the stage just for a moment. Well, I kind of just try to show you this just so perhaps it will remain with you, at least for the rest of the day, if not through the week. And just to give you a little bit of a comparison, which what, what was at stake um, and this kind of uh, deal that went on. So basically what we're saying is Jacob says to Esau, here we have a fine bowl of lentil 
This is Heinz lentil soup, but bear with me, couldn't find any lentil stew. This is a fine bowl, delicious, warming, nutritious, filling bowl of lentil stew. This is on offer, and it looks great. It's all yours. However, what I want you to give me is your firstborn rights, which means when Jacob, the dad, died, Esau was going to inherit head of the household. He was also going to inherit twice of the wealth. He would also inherit should have done that one first. Let's swap these. Twice of the grain. Put the money back on there. You're getting the picture, aren't you? That's, that's a bit light. Ooh, it's even lighter. Twice the livestock. So you're getting it, aren't you? Head of the household. Twice the livestock, twice the money, twice the grain, more servants. You're now going to see what I'm going to do here, aren't you? Yeah. Twice the land and kind of the respected community leader, the kind of head of his family, but also, you know, it'd be like being part of the landed gentry in the community. So... A simple choice, really. Here we have a sort of bowl of lovely, yummy, warm lentil stew. But all I'm asking you to give up is just that. Now, when you look at it like that, it's a bit of a dumb choice, isn't it? Well, I think so. How many of you think the stew is the better choice? How many of you think the birthright and all it means is the better choice? Good. Well chosen. And when you look at it like that, the choice is obvious, isn't it? Not one of you are even considering that to be a remotely valid choice. And we can look at that story and think, what a numpty. What an idiot. What a doofer to kind of choose that and sacrifice all that. But I reckon we could do exactly the same thing and would do exactly the same thing. Possibly, we'll do exactly the same thing in the same circumstances. And we look at a bowl and we sacrifice the birthright for a bowl of something that's perhaps so meaningless. And um, the question I ask, uh, I want to kind of raise with us today, what causes us to put so much high value on something that's so insignificant and actually to have so little value for all that God wants to do in and through us. And there's a great story, it's a true story, apparently, about some robbers. And rather than uh, going in and robbing this jewellery store, they did something very clever. They snuck in, over the right, rather than crashing through you know, the glass and uh, doing the obvious kind of alarms ringing, police are arriving and it's all kind of dash and grab. Um, they went in overnight and what they cleverly did was they changed the um, price tags on all the jewellery. So things that were like thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars became like two pounds fifty I know dollars and pounds but you know what I mean they those that were really expensive they put low prices on and low price items 
they put high prices on. And then nobody knew they'd been in. And then the next day, obviously this was some years ago before everything got scanned and barcoded and all that, and would have shown up on the till. But they went in the next day, and them and their friends went in over the course of the day and brought lots of really cheap items, but hoarded, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of jewellery because they swapped the price tag. And isn't that what we do internally with some of the challenges that come along? We place higher value on something that is really quite worthless, and we place less value on something that's incredible and life-transforming. So what makes us vulnerable to making that decision? Because when, you know, when it's stated for you like this, who would make such a choice? But we're all prone to making those kind of deals where we see deal to something worthless and no deal to something great. So I just want to talk about some reasons why I think we become vulnerable, and some of them are lifted from the story, that we deal when we shouldn't. Envy. I think envy of what other people have got and is going on in their lives can cause us to deal for something that we shouldn't. And we see that with um, Jacob. Jacob is uh, told in earlier chapters that he came out of the womb grasping at Esau's heel. It's like he was grasping for what Esau was going to get. Then we have this moment where he is grasping for the birthright. And then later on, if you continue to read on in subsequent chapters, there comes a time when Isaac, the father, is going to bless the children. And he also then deceives his father then to um, get the blessing. So all through Jacob's life, he is envious. He is trying to grasp what Esau had. And I think if we are envious of perhaps status or possessions or relational status or uh, things that other people have, that can cause us to begin to start dealing on things that we shouldn't in order to get what we think we should have or deserve. So disappointment is, so envy is one thing, disappointment is another. When we're disappointed with perhaps the way life hasn't turned out, we perhaps look for other ways of, ungodly ways of making it work out. And if we go again, backtrack the story, uh, Abraham is the grandfather and Abraham was promised children and he was promised Isaac, not that he was called that then, but he was promised Isaac through his uh, wife Sarah, but because he couldn't wait and he was disappointed that God wasn't moving fast enough, he went with the servant Hagar and had Ishmael in trying to make it work for himself. So his disappointment that God hadn't delivered him with a child caused him to make his own deal to make that possible. Um, I had a Oh, I, don't, I should say this, but I've kind of gone there now. I had a bizarre thing happen a couple of years ago, um, which was uh, I uh, have a lot of migraines and headaches, and the doctors have tried uh, loads of medication to sort that. And a couple of years ago, my doctor off the record said, um, the only thing I can now suggest to you is either you take cannabis or get a lot of sex. And I remember going to Leon and saying, because he was asking about my health, and I said, well, funny you should ask it. Just this week, the doctors recommended that, you know, perhaps the next course of treatment is that I either start taking cannabis or I have lots of sex. Do you think on medical grounds you could grant me permission to go down either of those routes? And guess what he said? No deal. Yes. Anyway. So, yes, disappointment when things aren't getting fixed, aren't going right for us, aren't kind of happening 
can cause us to, you know, deal with something or mess with something we shouldn't get involved with. Vulnerability, classic, is what's happening here, is Esau is hungry. Now, I know when you're on a diet, you're hungry. It's so much harder then, isn't it, to resist the chocolate cake. But when we are depleted in our resources, when we're tired, when we're hungry, when we're emotionally exhausted, when we're drained, it's easier then to settle for something when our reserves are depleted than hold on for all that God has for us. And um, uh, the other bit in the story that I think uh, why Esau was potentially more vulnerable, yes, he was physically hungry, but if you skim back to the beginning of the chapter, you find that Abraham has recently died. And so uh, there is a, a season of mourning here. And, and they say that the reason they were having lentil stew was because that was part of the process of mourning. That's what you had when you were in a place of mourning. You had lentil stew. And so there's a sense, actually, that this family's in mourning. And so Esau comes, and he's grieving his grandfather, so he's emotionally depleted, and he's also physically hungry, so he's vulnerable, isn't he? And how many of us know that when you're vulnerable, when you're tired, when you're emotionally depleted, when you're mentally stretched, when you're done in, how much more it's tempting to deal for things that we shouldn't? I remember at the end of the James Bond film, I'm not a major film person, but uh, um, I, I know there's one, and I couldn't tell you which one, where right at the very end, the villain, he's sent out off into the desert, and James Bond gives him a can of oil, knowing that he will get thirsty enough to drink the oil. When you're desperate enough, anything. I used to say to a friend of mine when I watched friends getting into bad relationships, when you're thirsty, any drink looks satisfying. And, I, you know, I think with the James Bond thing, you know, the guy went into the desert and clearly it got to the point where he was so depleted, even a can of oil was looked refreshing and it, you know, obviously was going to kill him. Desperation is another reason why we deal for something less because we see no other way to get, another, uh, no other way to get what we want. Immediate satisfaction is so tempting, isn't it? In 1960, uh, Walter Michel, I think that's his name, Stanford University, did the marshmallow test. How many of you did psychology? I studied this in psychology and know about the marshmallow experiment. It's so fun. You must go on YouTube because there's some updated um, clips of this now and the children's expressions are just fantastic. And the experiment was they put a child in a room with one marshmallow on a plate and they said, you can have this marshmallow, but you must wait 20 minutes to eat this marshmallow. And if you do wait 20 minutes, then you can have more marshmallows. And then they left the room. And I mean, the YouTube thing is hilarious with these children picking it up and smelling it and sort of licking it and putting it down and trying to not touch it. But this was a genuine, this is a reconstruction, but in the 1960s, it was a genuine psychological experiment to see whether we can delay gratification rather than having immediate satisfaction. And the, the research went on to show that years later in life, those children that were able to wait and hold off and resist until the 20 minutes was done later on did way much better in life. They excelled at school. They did better in business. And those that immediately gave in to the marshmallow, uh, the one on YouTube I looked at yesterday, this little girl, the, the lady's not even out the door, and she's already shoving it in her mouth. But... Um, um, but those that kind of succumbed so quickly to the temptation um, didn't do so well later in life. There is something character building, isn't there, about waiting for what God's going to do rather than settling for something less. Last couple of things. Temptation is basically very attractive. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting, is it? 
That's why we settle for something less. If temptation wasn't remotely interesting or exciting or appealing, we wouldn't even go there. So last thing, self-protection. And this is more to do with when, rather than saying no deal to say the bad things, when we don't say deal to the good. Like if we've got a friend that we know we should be praying for or inviting to church and we keep putting it off, we're not saying deal, are we, to the thing that God is prompting us to do. And sometimes that's self-protection. We're worried about rejection. We're worried about what they'll think. We're worried about what they say. So sometimes the reason we don't deal for the right things is self-protection. Okay, um, one little thing for the desk at the back. Is there any chance of dropping the lights a fraction? I'm melting. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Okay, so some reasons why we are prone to settling for less when God wants more. And I think when we do deal for less, when we do go down that route, a number of things happen. We weaken our resolve, don't we, for the next time. Um, I've seen this illustrated with a block of Jenga where that someone takes blocks out. And they say, every time you kind of go uh, deal for something not great, it's like you take a block out. And then the next time, another one comes out. Eventually, you know, the block, the life collapses. And each time we say deal to something, even at the very kind of first temptations of something, like Leon spoke about a few weeks ago, didn't he? Don't even look. You know, the guy with the motorbike. And uh, on the Hardy Davidson and the old man on the little moped and he was whizzing past him and it's because he peered over to look. Don't even look because you don't know what you get caught up in. And so each time we take a look, each time we say deal to something we shouldn't, a thought that enters our head, an action, uh, it weakens our resolve. Once you've said no uh, one time, it's easier, isn't it, to say um, no the next time. In fact, I do know somebody um, who I used to know many years ago who... Again, not the best of subjects, but um, he, he and his girlfriend at the time had become pregnant and they didn't want the child and they had uh, had an abortion. And uh, he then said to me, he said, well, then it happened a second time. The second time it was so much easier. And I thought, gosh, what a way to talk about, you know, two child's lives. However, again, it powerfully illustrates once you've been there once, the second time seems so much easier. And I know that's a really emotive subject and I'm not wishing to kind of raise that subject with you today but I'm just trying to say once you go there once it's so much easier isn't it to go a second time it weakens our resolve in dealing for something less I think it can mean that we're sh there's an element that we're showing contempt for God and if we look in um, the end of this scripture the very last thing it said then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew Esau ate the meal then God had left he showed contempt in doing so for his rights as the firstborn he didn't regard them as worth anything, so he, he settled for the stew. And I think sometimes, you know, we are basically saying, well, I know you've got that for me, but I'm not interested in that. You're kind of showing contempt for all that God has for you. It might be, when we settle for less, that we say God, we're suggesting that God is faulty in some way, that he hasn't delivered, he hasn't come through, he hasn't proved himself to be who he is, so he's kind of faulty in some way. And in Jeremiah 2, it says, what fault did you find in me that you strayed? that you went for worthless things? What fault do we find in God and his provision and his promises and his faithfulness, his love, that we go for other things? Last couple of things. We miss out on the great adventure of faith. Each time we deal and settle for less, we're missing out on some of the adventure of faith that God wants to take us 
in. And lastly, on that bit, we get the worst of both worlds rather than the best. So I know you, I've used this illustration before when sometimes we think we want to be in the world and not of the world. And actually we think, well, I'm really for God, but I also want a bit of this in my life. And I know that's not great, but I want a bit of this in my life. And we think, yeah, but I'm really on for God, but I also want to kind of have this in my life. And actually, rather than having the best of both worlds, you have the worst because you don't have fully that and you don't have fully that because every time you go there you feel guilty and every time you go there you realize you're missing out on something and you haven't got that great relationship with God that you really want so rather than the best of both worlds you end up with the worst so when we deal for less you know the the scenario isn't great so what do we do when we strive for more what is the advantage what is the gain what is the you know the the brilliance of uh, dealing for more well first of all perhaps not in any particular order, we become part of the great cloud of witnesses that it talks about in Hebrews 12. When we say, I'm dealing for God, I'm dealing for his kingdom values, I'm dealing for how he wants my life to be, we become part of the great cloud of witnesses. I think we also show powerfully that we love and trust God in a way that even worship may not do. Because in worship, we can, God, you're everything. I surrender all. You're fantastic. You are the above all things. You are all that I want. There is no other. And we can worship with full hearts. But how we live that out is clearly, you know, a powerful witness to really what we believe. And uh, so we become, you know, demonstrators of really what, how we love and trust God. I think we also model something for others to follow. How many of you have been inspired by somebody else's commitment to God? the risks that they've taken for God, the commitment they've kept to God, when temptations come, how they've resisted it. There's something incredibly powerful, isn't there, about somebody who's been there before and either said no deal, they inspire you to say no deal, or they say deal to taking risk for God, deal to giving sacrificially, deal to extending God's kingdom footprint, deal to, you know, stepping out in faith. They inspire you, don't they? And you want to walk that way too. Um, I think it's Bill Hybels, it might be John Altbo, they... they um, um, say in one of their many books that one of them got on a bus one day I can't imagine Bill Hybels ever getting on a bus but anyway um, one of these great men of faith got on a bus one day and they had their children with them who were over the age of child fare but the conductor said to them oh that's one adult and two children and so Bill said no it's three adults and the bus conductor said oh you needn't have said I would have never known and say it was Bill Hybels he said no but my children would have so he modeled something by saying, no deal, there and then. He modeled something, didn't he, to his children, that actually doing the right thing, the honorable thing, the honest thing, was the right way to live. We tread a path for others to follow. We show in doing that, that he who is greater in us is greater than he that is in the world. Every time we say no deal to things that are really tempting and really powerful, or we say deal to the things of God, we show that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We become more Christ-like in our character and we enable lost and broken people to encounter a dynamic God. When people look at their lives, they don't see a lukewarm Christian. They see somebody who's saying, no deal, not going to go there. I'm not going to cross that line. That's not for me. Or conversely, we're saying, yes, I'm going to walk across the room. Yes, I'm going to invite my friend to church. Yes, I'm going to pray every day for that person. I'm passionate about this faith that I have. So what do we do, just as I bring this into a close, what do we do to strengthen our resolve? We need to reinforce our perspective regularly of kingdom values. Paul Scanlon, who's the minister of Abundant Life Church, says this, the deeper you go into your deal, the stronger your no deal becomes. 
So the stronger you, you, you drop yourself into the things of God and his word and his truth, his faith, the deeper you go into that, the easier and the stronger you'll know that because you rec- recognize how ridiculously pathetic that really is. What's on offer there is pathetic and compared to what you have in God. So reinforce your perspective of kingdom values. And the only way you can do that is getting into the word of God, hanging out with Christians, coming to church, opening up your life before God. So reinforce your perspective of kingdom values. Remember your birthright. Remember what's at stake. Remember all that God has promised you. It's not just for your relationship now. It's also the inheritance that God is preparing for you in heaven. Remind yourself that tomorrow will come. One of the things that you see in the text there is Esau says um, uh, in verse uh, 31, after Jacob says, all right, trade me your rights as your firstborn son. Um, Esau then says, look, I'm dying of starvation. What good is my birthright to me now? So he was thinking about today. Jacob was thinking about tomorrow. And tomorrow always comes, doesn't it? And uh, God's promises will come true. And like Mark said in the worship, you know, what God has spoken will come about, will prove to be faithful and true. So we reinforce our perspective of kingdom values. We remember all that is our inheritance and our birthright. We remind ourselves that tomorrow will come, whether that's the bad consequences of our actions or whether that's the great promises of God, of him working in our lives. Last couple things, we make our resolve in the cold light of day rather than in the heat of the moment. Some of the best decisions that you will make that will strengthen and sustain your life are made in the cold light of day and then followed through. Don't make them in when the pressure's on, in the heat of the moment, when the challenge is there, then it's, you start to waver. But if you make your decision in the rational cold light of day and stick with that, it's incredible how strong and powerful you can become in your decisions. Uh, Ruth Thomas, who's normally here at the nine o'clock, a uh, friend of mine, she texts uh, a number of us in the life group regularly. And I remember one time she sent a text saying, the battle is won before the battle is begun. The battle is won before the battle is begun. You make your decisions before God and before others in the cold light of day, and then you stick with them. So the battle is won then rather than in the heat of the moment. So lastly, we recall the deals that God has done for us. God says things like this, I will never leave you or forsake you, deal. I will always be working in your life for your good, deal. I will make it possible for you to have a relationship with me, deal. I will provide a solution for your sins, deal. I will strengthen you when you need it, deal. I will comfort you when you're heartbroken, deal. I will go to extreme lengths to demonstrate my love for you, deal. And so it goes on. God has spoken deals over our lives that he will not revoke that he will not, in the heat of the moment, change his mind on. So, what's my final statement to you before I read some scripture and we sing? Just this, really. May we all have the commitment to say no deal to all that would destroy the work of God in our lives. And may we have the courage to say deal to all that would extend God's kingdom footprint in our lives, in our community in this world. Let me say that again. May we all have the commitment to say no deal to all that would destroy the work of God in our lives and may we have the courage to say deal to all that would further his kingdom footprint. Let me just read you from Hebrews 12 and then 
the band are going to come back up and um, Janita's going to sing initially over us. Um, my Father, I adore you more than anything my heart could wish for. I just want you. Let's read from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life on earth, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set for us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross regarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility and challenges he endured from sinful people. Then you will not become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. Remember the encouragement that God spoke to you. As I said, may we all be people that are able to say deal to the right things in our lives and no deal to those that are not. Thanks.